0: Hey, welcome back to another episode of wrapping with reef bum i'm your host keith burkelhammer so on today's live stream i welcome back mike paletta what's going on there mike
1: uh, another day in paradise as i'm sitting here in my sunroom you can see my tank behind me but it's also kind of a sad day uh for those of you that don't know uh one of my good friends and mentors, James Lawrence, of Reef the Rainforest uh, Publications, formerly Microcosm, uh, passed away th- this week, and I found out about it today. And I, I, again, I'm deeply saddened by it. I, I offer my condolences to his family and, and his other friends, of which he had many. Uh, he was my mentor in terms of uh, getting me to write the, both of my books, and that uh, I was writing for three or four magazines in the early 1990s and James approached me and said, uh, we can put all your articles together and do a book. And I said, well, that would be great. It'll be real easy. He said, yeah. Unfortunately, James lied and that is not <laughs> what, we did, what we did the book. Uh, we basically changed everything and it, it took approximately a year. But James was always behind the scenes. He always was pushing for the hobby. He always had the hobby at heart. Uh, he not only had me publish my books, but also Bob Fenner. Uh, All of Scott Michael's books, which are beautiful fish books. Uh, uh, Nilsson and Foss's uh, Reef Secrets. Uh, Eric Borneman's book. Uh, He published a lot of books in the early years of the hobby that really got things going. And that was obviously long before the internet. So we shared everything. We'll find out about the hobby through books rather than on the internet. So he will be sorely, sorely missed because he really was a a voice of... uh, compassion and uh just total interest in the hobby from coral magazine now and amazonas back through the books he's done he's always been the main publisher of uh, print material for the hobby
0: yeah it is a it is a big loss for the hobby i had um, matt peterson on um, a few weeks ago i think it was and uh, we we spent a lot of the episode talking about um the importance of um print and having reliable um, places to get information and talked about the influence of uh, AI, artificial intelligence, and how that's a, a threat to all that information in terms of uh, what you see on the internet and how anybody can kind of like put together a blog post and perhaps that um, you know there's uh, some some um, holes in those uh, posts based on the assumptions that are made by uh, artificial intelligence and yeah we just spent a lot of that episode talking about how really, really um, things have changed over the years and that um, people are getting a lot more of their information, you know, from, from other folks uh, out there, not necessarily the, um, the people that are seen as the most reliable in the hobby. So that's, print is still so very, very important. That is a big loss to, uh, to lose James.
1: Yeah, no, I, actually James uh, came up with the idea that I should do a follow-up on the, the New Marine Aquarium so for Reef Builders, every Saturday, I've been doing a, a two-page po- or, two or three-page beginner's piece, like uh, protein skimmers, lighting, flow, uh, planning, tanks and stands, refugia. And I basically have enough material to go through the end of the year. It's basically a book in two-page increments because nobody reads a whole book anymore. Everybody will read two pages. So that's what we're doing there. And that's all thanks to James coming up with the idea of saying, Michael, you know, that was 20 years ago. Obviously, things have changed. It's time for an update. And we talked about doing it for Coral Magazine, but since it only comes out six times a year, uh, it really wasn't conducive to doing that. So, this is basically the new series that I'm back writing for uh, Reef Builders. Yep.
0: A couple of comments from the viewers here. Uh, Ari, sorry for your loss, Mike. Um, uh, Andy uh, Bauma, so sorry for your loss, Mike. Um, Jason Langer, so many of those books published by James are sitting on my shelves. Yep um yeah yep for sure uh just, just to, uh quickly um for, for those folks that don't um know what mike was talking about in terms of the books that he has written he published the new marine aquarium and the ultimate marine aquariums and um mike has also not only has he um been uh you know writing for a number of publications over the years but as he mentioned he's currently writing also for uh for reef builders but he's also a speaker in many conferences across the US and, and around the world. And he was also named the 2022 Masno Award uh, recipient. Um, I also want to just do some, some more housekeeping here and thank the, uh, the sponsors for the live stream, both Bulk Roof Supply and Ecotech Marine. Appreciate their support. And I also appreciate all the support of you folks out there that have tuned in and, and there are a lot of comments um, coming through the chat, which is, uh, which is great. Yeah, it, uh, it, it, it's, it's tough. That's, that's another um, big loss to the hobby.
1: Yeah, Bob Fenner, uh, Jake, now James. It's just a lot of my old, old friends. I mean, it, it's, it's sad. I've had most of these friends for over 30 years and they just keep disappearing. <laughs> so it's sad. Yeah. Oh, speaking of speaking, I will be speaking at Aquashella next Saturday. Oh, nice. So if you're near Dallas, uh, I, you come up and say hello. I always like to chat with everybody, but I'll be talking on that uh, corals and fish don't die without cause. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah yep there's usually uh something behind that right in terms of the keeper of the tank yeah,
1: oftentimes it's stupidity but we can't fix that so we, we try to fix the things we can fix
0: yeah um here at that is ever that is too. uh just looking at some of the um the other comments chris uh, from aci is in the house um hi chris yep um all right so mike uh, yeah, Aquashella. I've never been to an Aquashella show, and, and um, I'm, I'm definitely intrigued. That's the one uh, show, major show that I've never been to, so I think I need to uh, get, uh, get out there and see one.
1: It's a much more laid-back and relaxed show than we're typical because it's at least 50% freshwater. Uh, there's some, excuse me, reptile people sprinkled in, and it's not just a, a frag swap, per se. Uh, they have speakers. I mean, basically, we walk around for the whole day talking to to everybody. Uh, There's speakers all throughout the day with usually interesting topics. It's just a a, a really uh, relaxed show from my point of view compared with some of the other shows. It's not – obviously, it's not as huge as like Macna used to be, but it's still nicely sized. And again, with half the people being freshwater. And uh, we do our best to try to recruit them into the dark side.
0: (laughs) And and is it fair to say that um, there's a lot – there's a good – chunk of younger folks that attend the uh, the aquashella show which is hopefully uh an audience that uh, we'll see more of in terms of the reef keeping hobby.
1: I say yes and also get more families than you typically see at the reef shows because they have stuff to do. Uh there's different various food booths. There's usually they have beer nearby. So it's much more relaxed than uh the, the typical shows. I mean they they want you to have a good time throughout. You're not just there to buy 10 frags and run out in an hour. It's kind of an all-day experience.
0: Yeah, a uh, um, couple of folks, Chris and uh, Giovanni. I got it. They're, they're telling me I got to come next uh, Saturday. I think I got a fishing trip, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to uh, to pass on that. But um, they have multiple. Uh, you, can, there's...
1: you can fish anytime, Keith. You got a big <laughs> tank. Just throw the hook in the tank, reel them in. you're set.
0: <laughs> yeah. Are you going to um, Reef in New York this year? Now, no,
1: to be honest, I don't have any room in my tank for anything. I mean, <laughs> literally anything. So I'm not, I go there with the desire to buy something, but there's nothing I want to buy. I know I've said that before, but since I've made the, the a few tinkers on the tank, I said I wasn't going to change anything dramatic, and I really haven't. Since I've uh, gotten things under control, the, the growth and the uh, coverage in the tank is as good as it's been when you know, five years ago. So I'm, I'm quite happy with where things are. Too bad it took me uh, two years to find <laughs> out that uh, how, what was causing the STN and then finally get it managed.
0: Right, you wrote about that in, in uh, Reef Builders. I know we've talked about it on, uh, on past live streams. So how many months has it been since, uh, Mike, just give people that might not know the details, you know, it's just kind of like some cliff notes in terms of what you did over the past couple of years in terms of identifying and treating the, uh, the issue.
1: Okay. Sanjay and I were actually, I, I miss Sanjay, he, congratulations on his wife having her uh, retirement party yes. tonight, that's why is not here with me. So I will try to carry the load without him. But Sanjay and I were both having the same issue where everything would be doing good and then would see a spot on a coral, it would gradually eat away at the corals, usually starting at the base, and then it would die. Everything would be fine, a week, two weeks, a month, would suddenly see it again. And this continued probably for two, two and a half years in both of our tanks. And it was driving both of us insane, because it didn't matter if it was a frag or if it was a big colony, this, this malady would, would manifest itself. And I tried virtually everything to see what would kill it, from high iodine, high pH, a, a number of different things. Nothing would seemingly get it under control. Then by pure happenstance, last July, I was at ARC with Randy and Devon, and I was talking about this, and they said, we had the same problem, and we talked to a few folks, and they said to dose with Cipro. So I went and did as much reading as I could on dosing Cipro, and some people actually were dosing oxalinic acid as well, both of which are in the same class of antibiotics, quinolones, Oxalinic acid is a milder form of Cipro. I did have access to the oxalic acid. I ordered it, but it wasn't gonna be there for a month, but I did have access to Cipro. So I did the literature and I found a dosage of uh, one 500 milligram tablet per 100 gallons. So I mixed up a batch of that and I had a coral, I I wasn't confident enough to dose the whole tank yet. I had a a spatulata that was starting to show signs of with the base dying up. So I took it out. I did a four hour dip in the Cipro bath, in a, a diluted Cipro bath, rinsed it off, put it back in a tank. Two days later, I did another Cipro, another Cipro treatment. Two days later, I did another Cipro treatment. After the third treatment, all the polyps were out. The necrosis stopped dead. I'm going nah, maybe this was a, a bacterial infection. Because Cipro is a broad spectrum, it will work on gram-negative bacteria. So. I decided if I saw it again, I was tired of losing corals, I was gonna do the whole tank treatment, which also people had talked about. So the, the, the treatment for that was again, one 500 milligram capsule per 100 gallons of tank water. I had roughly 500 plus gallons of water, so that would be five tablets. No, that would be one tablet for 500 gallons. So I mixed that up, I treated it every other day for two weeks. Everything seemed to stop. Prior to that, though, before I treated the tank, I set a uh, microbiome test, or aqua biome, sorry, aqua biome test to aqua biome, test to them. Unfortunately, I didn't realize it takes about a month for that to come back. I'm thinking, okay, a week, two weeks, nothing. So in the interim, while I was waiting for that test to come back, I was losing a coral here, a coral there. And I just said, you know what? Either the tank's gonna die, or I'm gonna kill this bacteria, or whatever it is, with the Cipro. Because the, the uh, Spatulata was still doing fine, but other coals around it were still dying off from time to time. Treated the tank with the uh, 500 milligrams of Cipro every other day for 10 days. That is five total treatments. Everything seemed to stop. I got my test in from Aquabio. It showed literally half of the bar of bacteria was Vibrio. Vibrio is one of the bacteria that is very virulent and very pathogenic, particularly to Acros, and particularly to acromillipora and uh, Tenuis. Hey, Mike, one, so, one question for you,
0: because I saw that chart you included in the build was uh, article showing that huge um, chunk of the uh, Vibrio bacteria in, in the uh, diversity um, the composition, right. whatever it was. Did, um, did they also list out the specific, because there are some, um, I guess, uh, species of Vibrio that are not pathogenic. Did they list out the pathogenic types for you?
1: I actually contacted them, and they said it was Vibrio vulnificus, which is a, a pathogenic gotcha. one. They said that was the majority of the okay. Vibrio. So I did this low dose, and the MIC54 Vibrio, I con- talked to my friends in microbiology, was it about this rate. So I had, I had the right dose, everything was good. Couple months later, same problem starts to arise. I go, okay, I, I, I. but it was a little bit different. It was actually somewhat faster, slightly faster. So I'm going, okay, what is, what's going on here? I sent another test into Aquabiome, but I also sent a test to my friend who's a microbiologist at Pitt. He came back and says, there's almost no vibrio in this in the culture you sent me, but you have Arcobacter. I go, What the hell is Arcobacter? He goes, Look it up. So I go in the literature, Arcobacter is another pathogenic bacteria. I go, Where do I get Arcobacter from? Looking at the literature, it comes in a lot of frozen foods. I feed my fish a lot, I feed them a lot of frozen foods. Obviously, I was dumping Arcobacter.
0: How, so how can just just this might be a dumb question? If it's in frozen food, you would think it's like an inert bacteria, but it somehow got activated. It's,
1: it, 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 it's bioactivated once it's heated up again. Wow! But what's interesting is part of the problem I also found is Arco tends to prefer lower pH water. My pH at the time in the tank would only run seven six five seven seven to seven, eight, seven, nine, occasionally. I was running, and I was also, because of the low pH, I also had a a fairly high amount of CO2 in there. There's literature that shows if you have high CO2 in your tank, the microbiome around the corals favors pathogenic bacteria. So I talked to my friend, I said, okay, ArcoBacter, I added it with the food, what can I do? He said, well, your MIC50, for ArcoBacter is approximately five times that of Vibria. So I go, okay. He goes, I don't know what it's going to do. I could find nothing anywhere that anyone had actually dosed 500 milligrams per, five, per 100 gallons of water. Once again, I said, okay, either everything's going to die or everything's going to survive. I'm not recommending you use antibiotics willy-nilly, I'm not recommending that you do this, but after two years and multiple thousands of dollars of dead corals, for seemingly no reason, because the other parameters basically were perfect and stable, I didn't get alkalinity spikes, I didn't get temperature spikes, I didn't have any of that. I couldn't figure it out other than it, it, having worked in infectious disease for a lot of my career, this looked like a pathogen a bacterial infection. It it looked like an infection to me. Obviously, I'm not a doctor, but I know what an infection looks like. So I did, once again, five tablets of Cipro every other day for 10 days. That I completed uh, probably October, November. Since then, I have had zero STN, zero. I've not lost a frag in the frag tank, I've had none of the colonies showing any signs of it, nothing. I sent in another aqua biome test, showed, no, showed a slight amount of Vibrio, virtually no ArcoBacter anymore because they have to specifically ask for that, but everything else. But after I dosed, I dosed five different kinds of bacteria from uh, Microbacter 7, Tunzi's bacteria, Dr. Tim's bacteria. Uh, what's the other one? Uh, two other ones. Basically, any bacteria could come in, uh, BioDigest, and there's one other one. Every day I was dosing a different bacteria into the tank in the hopes of replenishing the population after I'd killed off the pathogenic bacteria. I saw no negative effects on the corals, no negative effects on the fish. The only crazy thing I saw prior to dosing that, my... uh, ORP ran about 300 to 310. After the second dose, my ORP dropped down to 200. Mm. And it stayed at 200 for the entire course of treatment and for two weeks afterwards. After the treatment, I'm adding bacteria and I'm doing water changes. And the ORP gradually, it took literally three months till it finally got back to where it's at 300 every day. So whatever it did, it killed something that was sucking the oxygen out of the water and killing the coral. So it was, like I said, after two years, I'm not suggesting someone that's losing a coral, because that, that's something else that drives me nuts. You'll have a whole tank full of corals that are thriving. You'll lose one coral, and as OCD as most of us are, we'll change the whole tank to try and figure out or to make sure we don't lose that coral again. And not all corals are gonna do fine in every tank. We now take corals from all over the place and put them together and think they're all gonna do great. That's not how it works. So don't do that. And before you do any kind of treatment, make sure of what your cause is. If you're getting the massive spikes of things in the the tank where you're getting changes, it's not necessarily bacteria that's causing it. It's just stressing the corals. A lot of things can look like STN or RTN or be a cause of it rather than bacteria. But in my case, it was proven to be bacteria. Pests,
0: you know, macro eating flatworms. Oh, there's more pests. Yes, that could cause it.
1: Um, no, I mean, it, in the past uh, probably six weeks, I saw amphipods in Joe Iola's tank that ate virtually everything. They were like locusts. Wow. They ate mushroom corals. They ate Goniopora, They ate postalopora, And they reproduced like rats. And whenever the eggs hatched, it looked like it was snowing in the tank the little uh, small amphipods would land on something and then they would consume it. He had to treat it with, uh, uh, what's it, Miblomycin, the new treatment for heartworm in yeah. dogs. He had to treat a 20,000 gallon tank with that <laughs> to get those oh under God. control. Now, now I'm seeing people with Euphilias getting euphilia eating flatworms, which are almost impossible to see and just consume head by head very slowly. There are more pests now. As we get better and better at this, we get better and better at growing pests. And the thing that amazes me is, I remember when we started, it was always a saying, nothing will ever reproduce on our reef tanks. We have learned that pests reproduce far faster than anything good that we have in our tanks. And now we have to get them under control because we have the perfect conditions for pests. There's basically no predators for them. I have the same problem with deer here. I have a herd of 20 deer that walk through my yard every (laughs) night and eat everything because there's no predators.
0: Coyote urine. Try that.
1: Well, I have tried that. I have tried um, mountain lion urine. (laughs) I have done hair. I have done soap. Now there's still cages around the stuff that they eat, except they will leave my hostas going until august and then they will clean them down really the they, they
0: they save that till uh, for last huh i guess that's dessert
1: they save that for august every year in august i start spraying hot chili oil on the but every time it rains you have to spray it again and about after like the fifth or sixth time i get lazy the one night i miss psh, mowed down
0: you got a pet dog Tell. two
1: they walk right up to them and, and look at the dogs because they know nothing <laughs> bothers them in this neighborhood wow they walk in the street, in the middle of the street. You're driving in a car, and they just look at you like you know you're not going to hit. They're them like or squirrels. They're, They're worse. <laughs> they eat everything.
0: <laughs> so, Mike, there's a lot to unpack here. You know, in terms of uh, what you're talking about, I think you really cut. You're blowing my mind here and saying that Arcobacter can be, um, you know, released via frozen food, which is just mind blowing because you know most of us uh, in, in the reef keeping world here use uh, frozen food. Um, I, I, I'm
1: well, I, I, I forgot to add, I made one change in my fo- frozen food regimen since, since then. Instead of letting it thaw slowly, I now take the cube of frozen food, I usually feed mice,s my, feed I pop it into the microwave for 15 seconds, that not only thaws it, but it should kill most of the bacteria that are on it, from what I've read. I may be wrong, you may have to go slightly longer, but 15 seconds is usually enough to eradicate most bacteria on fish food.
0: And that, we're talking about mass produced stuff. That uh, you buy at the uh, pet shop or whatever, or online, and and um, so frozen cubes. hmm, That's uh that's really interesting. I mean, you know, that's um that's a big deal because you know I think there's questions in terms of can it be passed uh, pathogenic bacteria? Can it be passed from one hobbyist to another in terms of um, you know water going from one tank to it to another person's tank? Is that possible? Should we be coming up with a protocol to to be dipping frags or corals that go into our tanks?
1: My rule right now is if I got frags from my mother, I would dip them.
0: <laughs> What's what, do you, what? So what would be your dip in terms of preventing bad bacteria?
1: I I do a modified kung fu corals dip. I do a quarter tab. This is per gallon of water. I do a quarter tab of cipro. I do eight drops of Lugol's iodine. I do uh, a, what do I do? A capful of revive and a cat full of Melafix. Wow. And I also uh, add one tablespoon of potassium nitrate. I bump the potassium levels up because hyperpotassium also cause worms and a lot of other pathogens to jump off the corals. But you can't expect the water to do all the work. You gotta go in with your ball baster. I do this for about 15 to 20 minutes. Some people do more, some people do less, uh, depending on what I'm doing. The other thing I do, if I get anything maricultured, I cut it off the plug. If I get it off a plug of someone I don't know, I cut it off the plug. Granted, you lose a little bit of coral, but I sleep better at night knowing I I haven't introduced anything. I I think we talked about this last summer. I brought in an AmeriCulture plug, and it had this beautiful pink algae on it that looked like cotton candy. That stuff grew everywhere, and it looked like coral and algae, and it killed a significant amount of corals. I know you're, the, the viewers out there are going, Mike has killed a lot of corals. Yeah, Mike is stupid because at that time, Mike wasn't dipping and he let things in his tank. Now Mike has gotten smarter <laughs> in a year and everything gets dipped, everything gets treated. Uh, uh, occasionally, you lose stuff during the dip. But if you aren't overly aggressive and, and you keep the water right, I have a, a float box. It floats in the tank so the water is, is the same. I take it out. I rinse everything off. If I'm even remotely concerned about anything, I'll pour peroxide on it, rinse it again, and then put it in the tank. I mean, a quick five-second dip of peroxide usually doesn't damage the corals, but it usually kills off any other bacteria that may be there.
0: You know, I, I always wonder, and this is a question for uh, for Eli. And I'm gonna have him on in a couple of weeks with uh, with Andy on the uh, on the live stream. But you know, does does every tank really have the uh, pathogenic bacteria, and they're just kind of um, in in such small numbers in a tank that's not stressed out? And that uh, when some sort of stressor is introduced, whether it's, um, you know, change of parameters or or whatever it is that, um, you know, kind of puts the corals on the defensive mode and and increases their vulnerability, do those pathogenic bacteria kind of, um, you know, are they opportunistic? Is is that something that um, is, uh, does every reef tank have some level of pathogenic bacteria? I don't know.
1: I I would like to hear that because my... General feeling is yes, they do. And I, I, like I said, as you discussed, is it a stressor that's causing it? Because one of the things I've also been looking at is maintaining my trace element levels and doing my ICP tests monthly. I'm doing the fauna Marin test because it's the only one that tests, one of the few ones that tests for fluoride. And I now does fluoride daily. I know Sanjay laughs about that, but I I do fluoride daily. And since I've been doing that, that has also picked up the corals. And I think from what I've read, it's fluoride i want to say boron nickel and iodine if you have those levels good you typically tend to keep the pathogenic bacteria Interesting. down.
0: yeah i've um i've started dosing fluoride as well i've, I've um put in a few of the uh, the fauna marine icp tests so, so i have got a handle on that and what i noticed with the uh dose of the uh, fluoride is the uh blue tips on, on some corals are just popping now
1: yeah the, the tips, I mean, I have, I've had a uh, PC rainbow in my tank forever. It was red and green. Now it's red and green and purple and yellow. Wow. It looks like a rainbow. And I mean, I've never had that in, I mean, it's one of my favorite corals, but it never looked like that. I liked it just when it was red and green. Now it, it's spectacular.
0: It's, it's living up to its name. Um, oh, yeah. So Ari had this quite You, you talked about um, dosing a whole bunch of different, of bottled bacteria in, in trying to uh, replenish the, uh, the population after you use the, uh, the Cipro. And um, I think the, 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 the meat of the question here is, do you think those products could potentially introduce pathogenic bacteria? Are there, is that a possibility?
1: It is a possibility. I, I don't know, but it was the only option I had. I also added a little bit of uh, live live sand from Sea and put that in just introduced some bacteria from that and i did everything i could to replenish the bacteria because as we discussed a couple times when i started with dead rock i had tons of problems because i don't think it had the microfauna i don't think it had the bacteria necessary to keep a tank surviving long term and let the corals grow so now anytime i think my bacteria are used up i add this the problem i have with the bacteria though is on literally every one it says Dose once a week, dose twice a week. Having worked with bacteria, if you have them in the situations right, they should thrive. You shouldn't have to add it every other day. So I haven't come across a manufacturer that was willing to answer, why do you make us add it every other day or every week or something? I know it's marketing and I know you make money if you sell it all the time, but bacteria are present everywhere. I mean, you go water your lawn or dig a hole in the dirt, pull up the bacteria, throw the dirt back in, guess what, the bacteria is still there. I don't understand what's eradicating them from your tank that you need to add bacteria every week or two weeks. It doesn't make sense to me. You
0: know, unless the skimmer is uh, pulling some of that stuff out.
1: Bacteria is still going to reproduce, and bacteria typically live on the substrate. Obviously, there's free-swimming bacteria and there's substrate-dwelling bacteria, but most of the ones that we're looking for, I would assume, spend a lot of their time on the substrate, at least part of their time, so they're going to keep reproducing. Because if you look at where your detritus is, it's typically not in the water full of stuff. It's in a spot, and that's where you get cyanobacteria, and that's where you get other bacteria.
0: Um, I want to just um, uh, read Manny's uh, Reef's uh, comment. Keith, please emphasize the harm source society of using antibiotics in our tanks. You know, I think, um, you know, it's, it's a fair point. I'm, I'm not sure we, uh, we know the, uh, the long term effects in terms of using antibiotics on our, um, on our uh, reef tanks. I think that's that's more research that would be helpful to, uh, to know about. I think, um, yeah, there's always a risk when you're using antibiotics in terms of building up resistant strains and, um, you know, that, uh, that's kind of a, uh, a scary thought. And, and, um, so it's, it's, it's serious stuff. And, and I think that, um, a lot of us are experimenting with it. I, um, I treated, you know, that tank you're talking about, Mike, before the, uh, live stream, uh, peninsula tank with the uh, the wall-to-wall corals you know I I hit that uh, five months ago with oxalonic acid because I was having some similar uh, episodes and um, you know it uh, it it stopped it and and knock on wood I haven't uh, seen any other signs of that since I used it
1: well I I agree I'm not like I said I'm not advocating everyone and treat antibiotics if they have an STN or RTN figure out the source first do your homework I mean, I only did it after battling everything for two years and never coming up with anything other than seeing that what the Vibrio levels were in the tank, which to me were somewhat astronomical. But in, in terms of breeding out resistant strains, uh, I, I don't know if we're able to do that in a live environment. Usually a resistant strains in a single organism, you don't usually have it across an environment. And most of these antibiotics are typically broken down by UV light and all my tanks get UV light to some degree. They all get a little bit of sunlight. So I'm assuming that that's why they break down. And that's why you have to treat every two days. It doesn't linger in the water for a long period of time. It, typically, it's broken down.
0: Yeah, I just want to read a couple comments from uh, Andy uh, Bauma uh, at Manage Reef compared to the impact of uh, agriculture. It is very, very small. It's talking about the impact of um, dosing antibiotics. To be sure, use of antibiotics for pets Pets should be a, uh, a last resort. And then he also says, I could say that I'm going to quit smoking in order to stop climate change. And you would rightly say that doesn't make much sense, a drop in the proverbial uh, ocean. So, you know, interesting uh, thoughts. Andy's going to be on the live stream with, uh, with Eli. I know uh, Andy has been a big uh, proponent of using the uh, the aqua biomics uh, service. And he has got a lot of uh, data that, that he's going to be sharing with us, too.
1: Yeah, they actually uh, sent me a little bit of a blurb of stuff, which was interesting. They, they're they doing a lot of interesting stuff that, uh, you know, to my mind, the two still biggest neglected areas in terms of managing our tanks are understanding coral disease and understanding coral nutrition, uh, trace elements and feeding. Uh, we still know very little exactly. I mean, obviously, I don't have a microscope such that I can open up a coral's gut and see what's in there, but it will be interesting down the line as the information gets spread that we get better at this. I mean, we've only been doing this relatively for less than 40 years. Yeah. Uh, we've only been keeping SPS for about 30 years. Considering where we were 30 years ago to now, where we used to have heads of public aquariums tell us we shouldn't keep Acropora because they couldn't keep them alive. And now because of what we've done, people like Jamie Craig's are breeding them and getting them to spawn and getting 10,000 planula a pop. You know, the, the hobby has come light years ahead of where anyone ever would have expected it to be. So understanding disease and being able to manage and treat it is, to me, the next frontier of this.
0: Do, do you think we're seeing more instances of this type of um, thing going on versus because uh, I see a comment here from um, Ari about uh, it seems like this uh, many more bacterial infections in the past 10 years versus um, you know, prior to then. Do you think that uh, we're seeing more incidents of this sort of thing?
1: I, I, I get someone contacting me probably once or twice a week laying out the same scenario. I, I, you know, Particularly after I, I write an article or speak like this, I'll get a, a, like 10 people tomorrow will say, okay, I've had this. Do you think this? And I go, I don't know what else is going on. Because I have found that managing this, like doing an ICP test, you have to have everything else in line before you get to this point. You know, I've, I've had people losing corals because they were still using a swing arm hydrometer, and there's salinity in their ton .03O. So they had excessively high salinity, which was stressing the corals. I've had people lose corals that looked like this because their municipal water authority had suddenly put chloramines or some other compound in the water, and whatever they're putting in the water was killing the tank and they were still only changing out their RODI unit every six months like they had done for years. And it was getting used up in two weeks because of the new crap that the Municipal Water Authority was putting in. So you have to go through everything to figure it out before because RTN and STN are symptoms rather than the final cause. You have to find out what's causing it. You can't just say, oh, this is it. I mean, we're much better at monitoring. We can look at a lot of different things but we still all make stupid mistakes. I mean, obviously in talking with you, you know I've made a ton of them and I admit to them and I try to learn from them and I try to teach people, look at this stuff, look at your RDI. When was the last time you changed your membrane? When was the last time you changed the media? Well, I don't have to. Well, why? Well, I've changed it every six months for the past five years and had every problem. I have some, when was the last time your municipal authority sent you what they're putting in the water? And did you look at it? Well, no. And then they find out, like I've had probably three friends wipe out probably tens of thousands of dollars of grow out systems from the municipal authority not telling them that they changed the water. So my RODI gets a TDS meter and a chlorine test. Uh, You can buy a pool chlorine test, they're like 30 cents a piece, dip it in, because if they have chloramines in, the uh, RODI typically doesn't take the chloramines out. So you do a chlorine test, you go, "Uh uh-oh, and then you see it's there. you got to do something to remove it. I use Prime to take out the chloramines.
0: Um, <clears throat> interesting question here, um, NSB Reese. Did, did you try um, using another antibiotic like Chemiclean before you tried the, uh, the Cipro?
1: Yeah, I tried the Chemiclean and it did nothing with the Vibrio. Did nothing with the... Uh... No, erythromycin is primarily for, uh, for gram-positive bacteria. Vibrio is gram-negative.
0: You know, the, yeah, so that's an interesting point, Mike. Why, um, why dose bacteria um, after Cipro, uh, Cipro dosing if it's pretty much targeting the gram-negative bacteria, right? What's, what's the, what was your rationale for doing the uh, dosing bacteria products after Cipro?
1: There probably are some positive gram-positives. I'm not a bacteriologist, and I don't claim to be. So I was taking the shotgun approach that, okay, I know these have done no harm for me in the past. They may do a little or some good. I don't know. Everything I wiped out with this heavy, heavy dose of Cipro, so I wanted to cover myself. Plus, five days after, I hadn't dosed the bacteria yet, and my redox potential was still dragging the bottom. And I'm going, okay, maybe I wiped out a lot of good bacteria that were helping to bump up the ORP. So even after starting Mm -hmm. to dose the bacteria, it probably took at least a week to 10 days till I started to see the ORP come up. So I don't know if it's just time did it or my dosing the bacteria did it or my doing a water change did it. But I did all three in the hopes that I would, you know, bring things back to where they right.
0: were. You, um, you're, you use UV, correct?
1: I have, I, I, it's since been turned you, off.
0: And, and why did you turn it off?
1: I didn't see it really, the main reason I use UV is when I add new fish. I have found that if I run UV when I add new fish, I don't have any problems with ick or other diseases for the most part. And I run heavy UV on my 500. I'm running 200 watts of UV on that mm. tank. So I'm blasting whatever's in the water column. And I even run UV on the tank behind me when I add new fish to it. When I wasn't running UV, all of the tanks, anytime I added anything, all came down with it. Now that I run UV in there, if I add anything, I don't see ick. So, I run it until I stop adding fish. Once I stop adding fish, I turn off the UV. Yeah. You, and I've had no. Problems.
0: Yeah, you know, I just, I just got some uh, uh, result back from Aquabiomics. Aqua I run UVs on my systems. And, you know, the diversity on, on my microbiome report for the, uh, the one system I did uh, send a test in was, um, you know, not as diverse as a tank that is run without UV. And I guess, you know, my right. question is. And this is probably a question for uh for eli but um is running uv taking out bacteria bacteria that are beneficial to the corals or are the bacteria you know in the corals really the um the main bacteria that you should be concerned with and and um thus not be worried about having a detrimental impact on the corals i mean you know my i don't see any negative impacts on my corals but I just wonder in terms of that diversity, if that is a, uh, a concern.
1: Well, there's even an, another step from that. Looking at the diversity, how much of the diversity is knocked down by the UV? And then also, is there a difference between swimming, basically freeborn bacteria or substrate-based bacteria? Is one better than the other? Or you know, are they equally good, equally bad? I mean, that's a question for Eli. I have no idea, uh, but that, that's something else I would like to know. I will definitely be watching that.
0: It, it, there's, just so many, there's just so many unanswered questions and, and it's good that um, Eli is um, collecting a lot of data on that topic because I think it's, um, it's important information to, um, to understand and, and um, it's tough, man. This, this hobby has gotten a lot more complicated over the years.
1: It, it, well, we, we used to get basically the same corals from the, the top 20 feet of the tank and we get a diverse bunch. Now we get milliporas and tenuas all mariculture together. Well, typically when you mariculture stuff all the same, all in one spot, the pathogens that are, are best at attacking those are gonna be in that area. They're not gonna be coming from somewhere else. Uh, I, I, if you look at a, a cornfield, they have uh, corn borers in the corn. They're, they're not, you know, have other, path, other pests aren't there for the most part, because there's nothing to eat. But the organisms that eat those are typically where the food is. I mean, it's not rocket science. I, I see that in my garden. Every year I have a, a squash vine borers for my zucchinis and my cucumbers that I have to take care of. Uh, every year it's, it's a battle between me and them. Do I get the zucchinis out first or do they kill the zucchini plants first? So it, it's the same way when you're mariculturing stuff. If you have the same stuff all together, because we used to have a much more diverse species growing together, now what's everybody bring in? Tenuous and milliporous. Because right. seemingly that's all everybody wants because the blue light that we do optimizes the coloration of those corals you don't see blue torts coming in you don't see gemina Fares or humilus coming in why a lot of those are blues and greens everybody's kind of bored with those I still love those but the stuff that's coming in is all one yeah in my opinion.
0: yeah um, all right here's a uh, here's a, um, a little switching gears here a question from Scott Uh, Westman hey Keith and Mike I have a quick question. I think I overdosed phosphates and nitrates which are now um, 0.06 and 30 Um, Now my SPS and torches are browning out. Is that due to higher nutrients? I think um, go ahead Mike Uh,
1: No (laughs) Uh, I say that because I have played with the nutrients and I saw the king of coral growth and coloration Sanjay two years ago His tank was as spectacular a tank as you will ever see. Cassandra grows corals because he runs high nutrients and high lights. And at the time he was running his lights, he still does this. His lights are on for nine hours a day, all eight of his radions at 100%, all eight channels, 100% nine hours a day. His phosphates at that time were point, uh, what were they, 0.7 and his nitrates were 90. And I would pay you a thousand dollars if you could have found a spot of algae in that tank. It wasn't that that was causing it. It wasn't the high nutrients causing algae, because then he brought gradually over the next two years he has brought his nitrates and and, uh, phosphates down, and he suddenly started growing bryopsis, which he never had before. Mm. It was a function of some of the trace elements in his tank. Uh, If you have potassium and your potassium level is higher than calcium it can cause the corals to brown up. If you have high bromide and high iodine and low fluoride, your corals will brown out. There's a, a number of factors that cause your corals to turn brown, other than just high phosphates and nitrates. As I told you, during COVID, when we had nothing to do, I contacted 20 of the people that I considered to have some of the nicest tanks you've ever seen, and I correlated all of their data. The thing that we found, that I found the most interesting when I'm sitting there with nothing to do, is I was running different little mathematical formulas. The people that had the most colorful corals ran a ratio of 100 to one nitrate to phosphate, regardless of what the levels were, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if they were running 10 to 0.1 or three to 0.03, it didn't matter. The corals were beautifully colored as long as it was 100 to one. 50 to one, they were still good, but 100 to one was, seemed to be the crucial number. Interesting thing, uh, I don't know if you saw this or not, but uh, Claude Schumacher, Fauna Marin, stopped by my house uh, about six weeks yep. ago. And we were talking about this. And we were talking about nit- nutrient levels and what a pro- wh- how some people perceive them as problematic. And he says, they're not a problem. And he's the one that told me about the Trace elements. But then he said, but the most amazing thing that I found, and he runs 20,000 gallons of a coral farm and has, been, has over 200,000 ICP tests. What we found is the key ratio seems to be 100 to 1 phosphate to nitrate. I almost fell off my chair because I couldn't believe, unbeknownst to me, he had found the same number that I had wow. found. But he did it in literally thousands of tanks, I did it in 20
0: yeah you know that's interesting i i'd i'd, um, I'd clawed on and and um definitely need to get them back on uh, again in in a, yeah, in, a, in a future episode but we did talk about um um i think we were talking about cyanobacteria and trace elements and how that um if uh, i think it was uh, fluoride uh, bromide and chlorine if two of those three are out of whack then that could potentially be a cause of uh, cyano and uh there's so many things that go on you know i had um one coral in my tank, a BC hyperberry. Well, it, two different systems. A BC hyperberry browned out on me. None of my other corals browned out on me. And um, then all of a sudden, it uh, the color came back. And the and the one remaining frag I had because the other frags, you know, just um, I guess didn't survive the brownouts. But then on you know my other system, I had another um, pink Millie that browned out pretty much like overnight. And then eventually that came back. So that I mean that you know to me is like and, and I didn't really do anything specifically to try to retain, I thought it was like due to low phosphates or something.
1: I have had, I run a fairly high nutrient levels in my tank. I run uh, phosphate at 0.08 to 0.1. And I run my nitrates at 15 to 20. Since I have been doing that, the color on my corals has never been better. I used to run it significantly lower, but since I've gone to higher, but I've also gone to adding more light to the tank. There seems to be a relationship between higher nutrients and higher light versus lower nutrients and lower light. You can grow them either way, but when you misbalance them, that seems to also cause problems. So It's it's not just one factor. And that's, that's one of the things I liked about looking at Fauna Marin's tests. One, there's a wealth of information on their website in terms of each trace element and what it means. It's not just like three sentences. (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me. It's like one page of everything that this trace element can do. So when you have lots of time, which I wish I had, I used to sit and spend a day just learning about vanadium or uh, cobalt or something, because each one of them really, from what he shows, has some impact to certain things. But so doing your homework and sitting there, there's also a, a list of different ratios of how things need to be in balance with other things, and once you run five of his tests, he tells you what your tank is heading toward trend-wise. Okay, you're running a risk of cyano. You're running a risk of dinoflagellates. You're running a risk of your corals browning out. which, you know, I really appreciate giving a heads up, because if you can prevent it by adding the right trace elements and adjusting things, that goes a long way than having to correct it.
0: Um. <clears throat> The ratio is uh, nitrate to phosphate 100 to 1, right? Is that what you're, uh, yeah, okay, nitrate to phosphate. Um, What about the opposite problem? You know, let's say you've got really, really low nutrients. Is that a possible uh, possible cause of corals losing color, you know?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, you you remember the old Zeovitz systems where they basically had everything kind of like zero. The corals always look stressed to me. They have their color, but it's a pastel. It's not the vivid, deep colors that we see with higher nutrients. I know there's still some advocates that like to have no low nutrients. They think it helps the corals and fights the algae. Uh, it really, really doesn't in my opinion. I mean, I, like I said, I've been running higher nutrients. Sanjay's been running higher nutrients for a decade. And if you wanna see faster growing corals with more vivid colors, I mean, what's interesting is uh, when we were coming back from our visit the polar reef uh, in uh, March, I got to stop by his house and it was still dark relatively early. It was starting like 7, 7:30. Usually I'm there during the day because it's still a two and a half hour drive home. But I was there at like probably eight, eight thirty, somewhere there. All his lights were vivid, bright white, and it was dark out. I had not seen that before. Mm-hmm. And to see the corals then and how striking they were, and how bright his tank is. And then he goes, I'm gonna do you a favor, I'm gonna shift it over to blue. He turned on nothing but the blue lights. And he has the corals like you see in the pictures on the internet of these, you know, saturated corals that are just glowing. He says, the colors are there. He said, if I just run blue light, they're there. But I run white light, I grow faster corals. And we've all known that. Halides grow corals faster than do LEDs. But there's heat and there's other issues with with, with halides. I'm currently running halides and LEDs. I run a three-hour break of halides. And I know that has significantly helped the growth in my
0: uh, Just one on that. Point. I want to thank Rob upstate New York for the uh, super chat. Thanks again there, Rob. Really appreciate the comments. Keith, another super chat with Mike. I'm always learning. Thank you both. Appreciate that, Rob. Um, Mike, a point again about the uh, low nutrient system. Let's say you're fighting, and, and this is actually a, uh, an issue that I've been dealing with in, in one of my display tanks, and that is a um, cyano, little bryopsis, got some problematic algae, so um you know one way to try to attack that is to lower nutrients right try to get the nitrates and the phosphates down but then you get them down too low and that's not good either what, uh, what's your what's your right. advice in that situation
1: in that situation the thing i would do would be based off the corals every day sometimes twice a day based based on i use a small powerhead, not one that blows them off but that because I'm amazed by how much detritus settles all around. And if you think you have low nutrients and you baste and you take out that detritus and put it in a tube, shake it up the next morning and test it, you'll see what your actual nutrients are. You have localized nutrients then. So what I do is I base the corals every night and then every three days or so, if I'm having problems, I'll do a water change and siphon out as much of that detritus as I can. What else I try to do is develop a dead spot where all that detritus yeah. has. So you don't have to do a, a 50 gallon water change to get out all the detritus. In my upper right corner, I have a partition. that sits against the front, and there's two powerheads that blow. Everything gets trapped in there. So if I need to do a water change, I, and I don't have the time, I do a five gallon water change, suck out all that detritus, and my nutrient levels stay where I want them to be. Because like I said, if, if you think you have low nutrients, Based off the corals, take out the detritus, shake it up, let it sit overnight, and then test the water. You'll see what your nutrient levels actually are.
0: What about dosing nitrates and phosphates?
1: I do dose nitrates. I don't dose phosphates right now. My phosphates are high because I feed mice to shrimp.
0: Uh,
1: Microwave mice to shrimp, obviously. <laughs>
0: <but>. <laughs> now I'm going to have to start adding that to my protocol, Mike. I mean, geez, there's like another step in the... Uh...
1: Like you said, it has gotten tougher and tougher and tougher. <laughs> I don't, I don't know why the bacter. I mean, uh, Claude told me that the Archobacter came in the frozen food. And then I read a little bit that froze, some frozen foods, particularly fish, do have things like that. But typically, if you buy frozen food, you cook it. When you're buying frozen mices, you're not cooking it. So it's not a problem for the, the food packers. It's a problem for the corals. And how
0: fish. long are we uh, nuking frozen food for?
1: 15 seconds is what I read. Should work with, you know, how thick a, uh, you know, none of your food should be thicker than your finger. So it, it should be able to penetrate both sides of that.
0: Um, great of reef. Let's make sure to hit smash that like button, folks. Yes, we've um, we got to get those likes up, get more uh, folks in the stream. But we're getting we're getting we're getting a good number of uh, people viewing here. Um, Ari, Mike, what would you do for dinos? I guess that depends. Uh,
1: it depends on. I've had I've had dinos off and on over the past ten years. They seem to be more problematic now for whatever reason. Now, as soon as I see any, I mean, if I see one, I blast it with peroxide in a baster and I blast that same spot and I blast all around it. It seems to be they they like to be localized. I do that. Then I'll start doing more water changes. If they still become more problematic, I'll do a three-day blackout and I'll start adding uh, peroxide to the tank in a small amount, in a 500 gallon tank, I'll add 50 milliliters of peroxide. That has seemingly worked, but I also try to find out what the cause is. Typically, you get that when your nutrient levels have have suddenly dipped. So uh, I I watch for the dip. I mean, I I test everything now. I test my nitrates and phosphates a couple times a week because now that the corals are really taken off, I'm getting a much faster consumption of alkalinity. My alkalinity consumption's gone up over 60%, and my nitrates and phosphates are now getting consumed to the point where I now have to add a little bit of nitrate to the water
0: interesting yeah i think um a lot of us do dose uh, nitrates and and uh and phosphates I, that's um you know it's interesting because i i i've been getting some cyano in the uh, in the tank and, and what have you and you know like i was uh, saying that the the issue in terms of very low um nutrients was was something that i was doing to try to like combat the uh, the cyano and, and and some of the other problem like a- algae
1: then you get, then you get dynos. So, it's, right.
0: But I'm running a, I'm, I'm running a UV so that, uh, that could also uh, help prevent the free floating, uh, dynos, but there are other, yeah, products. it'll
1: get rid of the free floating ones It won't get rid of the substrate based ones. Right.
0: So it's, uh, it's interesting because there's just so many, um, different, um, there's, there's a lot of things that can, um, uh, are connected, right? So if you, if you, uh, yeah. if, you, if you act on something, then that's going to have an effect on something else. So it's a, it's a very complicated dance that we're uh, involved with here in terms of keeping a reef tank.
1: That, that's why one of the things I strongly suggest is do your water testing often and regularly. Because if you can see trends before they become problematic, you can often head them off. If you suddenly see your nitrates are dropping relatively quickly, or your phosphates are dropping, or they're rising, regardless, you've got to do something to manage it. Uh, and, but don't chase the numbers and do something drastic do things gradually and do them small. And like one of the things I, I've totally quit using is GFO because GFO is really good at removing phosphates, but it's also really good at removing trace elements. Yeah. And you get rid of your phosphate, but you get rid of the trace elements and you can't figure out why your phosphate levels are low and you're suddenly growing algae. It's because of trace elements that help to combat the algae and help to you know, make the coral stronger are being reduced. So you, like you said, everything interacts with everything else. Uh, Keeping it straight is uh, not the easiest thing.
0: It's a moving target. Um, hillbilly reefer. Yeah. Um, this is a good question, I think. And, and, uh, basically the question is, do you have, do, uh, do you, or have you run a refugium? And if not, why or why not? Thanks. I think, you know, so the question is, does, does it make sense to have macroalgae in the system to help, uh, reduce nutrients? Or is that, um, something with a mature tank that has a lot of coral in it is, is potentially not necessary. And are there some side effects, some negative side effects from running macro?
1: I run macro in this tank behind me, which you can see real quick. Uh this tank is, is really taking off. Uh I, I have run I run a refugium in the basement too, primarily for growing copepods, amphipods, worms and stuff like that. I don't see a downside for having a refugium. The only time I've had a downside of a refugium is if my power went out for an extended period of time and the refugium went anoxic. And then it comes back on all of a sudden, you're, you're dumping hydrogen sulfide or something else nasty into the water and then there's a problem. But as long as you, you don't go without flow, you're fine. I, in, in my opinion, and I've been running a refugium now since 1997. So I've had refugiums on all my tanks since 1997.
0: What about the use of live uh, phytoplankton? Is that something you've um, ever done in terms of growing and and feeding to your tanks?
1: I grew it for almost a year. I had the whole bathroom downstairs next to the tank. I grew it, I fed it. It eventually got to be too much time to do because the, the question is, okay, the corals for the most part don't eat phyto, but a lot of the microfauna and a lot of the pests do tube worms, uh, uh, vermited snails, a lot of the things I really didn't want ate the phyto. Did the bacteria eat the phyto and then the corals eat the bacteria? I, that's another question to ask them. You know, in, in terms of coral nutrition, we add food to feed the corals, we add amino acids to feed the corals, but realistically, I can't find a study that shows the corals are directly taking in much of the amino acid or much of the, of the uh, trace elements. But there is stuff in the literature that the bacteria are consuming these things. Well, 70 to 80% of what corals consume is bacteria. So are we secondarily feeding the corals by feeding the bacteria upon which the corals feed? That's an interesting question. I don't know. How efficient is it? Does it make sense? Do we need to do it? I don't know. Uh, I've seen beneficial effects of doing that. From adding the phytoplankton, there is some people in the literature that have had beneficial effects of adding phytoplankton for uh, an extended period of time. I did it for a year. I didn't see a whole lot of change of when I stopped versus when I started. All I knew was it was taking a lot more time to have to clean out the chambers. You get something that crashes, you have to add it. Uh, I mean, at first it's kind of fun. You're like, ooh, I'm growing this really cool, and I was even growing rotifers and doing that. Mm. I grew rotifers for six months and added those to the tank. Again, I didn't see a whole lot of benefit. Granted, I run a ton of fish in my tank. I have a, a ton of stuff in my tanks. Could that be the reason? Possibly. I don't know. But after doing that, I have better things to do with my time than, than clean green bites.
0: <laughs> it is a lot of work. I've been doing it for the last like a couple of months and um yeah you gotta like pretty much set aside it's like a whole nother uh thing in terms of maintenance in terms of uh re uh re regenerating those cultures and making sure that they're um they're all uh spick and span clean and and there's no uh potential bacteria that can crash the uh the cultures and i you know the one thing i have noticed is a big uh, increase in my pod um population oh yeah great yeah um yeah no you definitely
1: see that but you know, is that beneficial to the corals or not? And what happens if you get a pathogenic or uh, a uh, coral eating pa- uh, isopod or amphipod and you suddenly start feeding it? Are you basically feeding the enemy? Those are all things you got to look at. <laughs>
0: Yeah, again, this is like uh, stuff that uh, I, I never would have thought of uh, years and years ago when I uh, was, was was kind of like starting to get knee deep into the hobby. And, and I think there's just a lot more information out there these days. And there's a lot more um, experimentation, let's say, that's going on. And I think this is all good.
1: Well, that's what's nice. I've quit experimenting. I pretty much have it down kind of like a cycle. Uh, like... Changes I'm making, I added, I told you the halide lights. I put those on a year and a half ago. They've been running. Now, since I got the STN under control, the corals are growing fast, but I've also added Orphic lights, the strip lights to the front and the backs of the tanks. So now every square inch of the tank is fully lit. If I had areas that weren't as well lit as I would have liked. That has also helped with the tank. Uh, on a soft grill tank, we're getting to summer. Everything's gonna take off. Uh, I am take. I have a wooden stand under here that is now eight years old. I'm starting to gradually see Uh-oh. that a little <laughs> bit. So I'm getting a uh, anodized aluminum stand from a company called Alufab that you could park your car. Yeah. On. I do not want to be worrying about this when I'm away or on vacation. Because as we all know, when you're away, that's typically when bad things happen. So I'm putting that on. This is going to be cleaned up dramatically when I do that. Uh, it's going to be a bear. It's going to be eight to 10 hours to take this down and put it back. I did that two summers ago when I replaced the floor. But this mm-hmm. tank is, this stand is on casters. I can move it if I need mm-hmm. to. It sits off the ground so I can clean out the, the, the uh, stump. Uh, it's going to be much easier to, to main and, and clean. Uh, it even has a level on it. So I can make sure that it's perfectly level. So uh, to me, this is... Uh, I, I, I don't splurge very often, but I'm splurging. on getting a nice stand for in here because this stand, I, when I took a picture that I was joining reef builders, a couple of my old friends were busting my chops saying time to paint the stand. So <laughs> I won't have to worry. About
0: Mike, you mentioned the, uh, the lighting in terms of what you've been doing, tweaking the, uh, the lighting on your, um, 500 gallon display. And in the, uh, in the reef builders article, you talked about it. You did a whole article about the, uh, the lighting and, um, you said you, um, you learn from the experiments that you have been um, you know, doing with all these different lights. You, um, I think you also had um, talked about the new AI blades. What, um, what actually did you learn from these experiments with, with, with the new lights? Any, um, anything you could share with us about that? The,
1: the, the blades and the reef brights, which I've used the reef brights for at least 10 years, both have about the same amount of PAR. They all produce about 110, 115 PAR at the same spot. So those were fairly comparable. There was a slightly, and I, when I say slightly, I'm talking three or four inch better spread from the blade than from the reef bright. But to me, they're both very good lights. They're both cause a pop in the corals. Orphic lights I added after being at uh, fans and uh, at the- Tidal Gardens. Uh, yeah, at Tidal Gardens and seeing some of the pop on some of his colors of his coral. So I wanted to add something else to get that pop. I mean, you can get the pop with the radions, you get the pop with the reef brights, but I'm obviously someone that always tries something. And I knew that the lights at the very back of my tank was, the back wall was a little bit darker than I wanted to. It was running about 200, 250, uh, some spots 300 par. Since I added the Orphix, I'm at 400 par back there now. So everything is like popped and taken off. In terms of the front, the same thing. I wasn't getting uh, the pop I wanted. It was like 1, 150 down at the very front bottom. Now I'm at about 150 to 250. The corals have started growing significantly much faster. Obviously, it's not rocket science. You give the corals more energy in the form of light, they typically grow faster. So, but I'm also getting better coloration overall. And I really like the ease of use of these. These are not something I'm tinkering with. They're on for six hours a day. Till the end of the night uh, the uh, L- or the halides are on for three hours from noon to three every day everything's on from noon to three it's I get in some spots I'm at 600 650 par then those go off after just three hours then I'm at, I'm at about 350 par everywhere then when the radions kick off uh, the orfix and the blades are on and then I'm running about 250 to 300 at the front so it's gradually it is like a sunset from the middle of the tank to the, to the front and back. So it's providing what I want.
0: So I'm, I'm assuming you own a, uh, a par meter? Yeah. Because um, uh, also in the article you mentioned that you try to shoot for par between 350 and 450, and I'm assuming that's for, uh, for, for growing um, SPS, right? Do, I, are you also... Um... Well,
1: for growing SPS, particularly uh, Tenuous and Millipore. Okay. They seem to be really light hogs. Uh, they they seem to do much better coloration wise at that higher par than they did at the lower par.
0: How much do you um you know look at you know with with your par meter? How how often are you trying to determine any degradation of the uh, LEDs over time? You know I mean there's I think different things I hear from people depending on the fixtures that LEDs might last five years, some might last a little longer. How um how how often are you doing par readings to try to? Well,
1: Like behind me, these are G3s. These are six years old, and they still work fine. I have G4s downstairs that are four, three and a half, four years old. I check, I look at the lights probably every couple months. But I've done it actually a lot more often in the past two months when I was tinkering with the lights. But, like, what's interesting is I, I ran the PAR meter on this tank last year when sunlight was hitting it. And I had 1,200 PAR.
0: Wow. With the sun
1: with the sun, from now, well actually from uh, the middle, end of March through the beginning of October, when the sun, which doesn't shine a lot here in Pittsburgh, it it shines every now and then, but not, it's it's not blazing, it's not like Arizona. When, for those six months, these corals will probably double to triple in size because of the amount of light they're getting. Then during the winter, I bump up the LEDs, and right now, I've backed them off fifty percent because they don't when they when the sunlight's on, you can't even tell there's LEDs on this time it's they're totally blown away by it yeah, like you can see the uh, Nephthia, it looks bright green in that picture, but this right here was one uh, nub this big in February when I put it in. I got it at uh, the uh, what am I saying? The, the Lear meeting in uh, Cleveland in uh, February, put that in, that's how much it's grown. So the soft corals go nuts in sunlight. And I, I had, in the past, I one, didn't have enough corals in here, and two, I didn't have enough uh, cleanup crews. I have since added uh, 50 snails to this tank because I was having algae starting to grow this time of year. There's not a speck of algae problematic algae obviously you still have to clean the glass algae but there's no algae growing in the rocks there's no algae growing on anything and i have three mp60s blowing flow in here uh there's obviously a lot of flow in this tank and i got some uh 3d printing cones that go on there so the flow is director where i want it because the problem i had in the past is that detritus would settle on the flat rocks because these obviously this isn't as aquascaped as crazily as I would want it to but it's basically i just want my soft corals to grow and take off So a lot of detritus was settling on the flat surface now with those uh, 3d printed uh, MP60 cones that shoot the water down directly where I want it I'm not getting the detritus forming the detritus is blowing off into the overflow and it settles into the refugium on the bottom
0: I forgot in your 500 is that bare bottom or is there, is there sand in that tank?
1: Bare bare bottom.
0: Are you you just a firm believer now that if you set up another uh, tank, an SPS-dominant tank, that it's going to have to be bare bottom because of that detritus? Easier to find?
1: Not as much as detritus, as much as I crank the flow. Uh, That's that's a 500-gallon tank, and I'm running about 50,000 gallons of water an hour through there. So if you have any kind of substrate, I mean, if I put a piece of dirt on one side, it'll blow it all the way to the other side, six feet away. In a couple of seconds. So I can't really have substrate anywhere in the tank. Here I have all the pumps are up above. And I, the main reason I have substrate, if you, you look real closely, you'll see there's a pair of black leopard grasses in there. Love them. I love black leopard grasses. And I knew if I didn't have substrate, I wasn't going to be able to keep them. So I, I bit the bullet and put the substrate in and directed it. So there's, but there's also a partition behind it. So all the stuff behind it is blowing around, but the front, there's, uh, a bunch of uh conch and uh uh, sand sifting starfish in the front to keep the the front substrate clean
0: yeah um john wright makes a comment many experts in quotations say flow is more important than lighting you know i mean i think flow is definitely um, a big big factor you know and and that was like reason why in my peninsula tank that i went bare bottom because i knew with uh you know i've got two mp 60s and four mp 40s in that tank and there's no way that you know unless i use some some um you know uh reborn or something like that as my substrate there's just really nothing that i could put down there that would stay in place
1: no and to address john's quote unquote question about experts sanjay and i were ecotech uh, a month ago as i said and we talked to them about on on their little uh video stuff about flow and it's one of the few times that sanjay and i have not disagreed literally the entire talk we both agreed (laughs) on how important flow is. And one of the ways I put it is, okay, turn off your protein skimmer for three days. See what happens to your tank. Just about nothing. Turn off your lights for three days, to do a blackout to kill dinos or or cyano or whatever. What happens to everything? Nothing. Turn off your flow for three days. See what happens to your tank. You'll have nothing but dead corals. Turn it off for 12 hours, you'll see how bad it is. You don't even have to do it for three days. Corals are not designed to sit in a pond. There used to be a lot of flow. Going out on the reefs, when I'm trying to take a picture, trying to look at a coral, it's always whoo, whoo, <laughs> blows you back and forth. You can't imagine how strong it is. The, the flow we run in here is nothing compared with what's on a reef. So they are not designed to sit in a stagnant pool.
0: And, and, and is that because the flow is delivering nutrients and food and whatnot to the uh, corals? Is, is that part of it?
1: that as much as blowing waste away from it. Corals don't have a mechanism for waste removal or excess CO2 or anything else. And as I said, there's papers showing that there's a high CO2 in the microbiome around the coral, pathogenic bacteria and other things proliferate. So you need to have strong flow to blow the CO2 away from the corals. If you don't, that's where problems arise, in my opinion.
0: Mike, you mentioned uh, blackouts uh, a couple of times in the, uh, in the live stream. How, um, how safe are blackouts in a, uh, in a tank that's heavy in terms of uh, you know, corals? You know, are, are there risks in doing a three-day blackout? And will a three-day blackout solve your issues if, let's say, you've got some problematic algae and, and you don't get to the source of the issue? Will a three-day blackout just be kind of a Band-Aid that will not help?
1: It's a, it's a Band-Aid that allows you to buy time until you can figure out what the source is. Uh, I have done blackouts probably 20 times over the past 40 years. I can't say honestly I've ever lost a coral from doing a blackout. I have lost a coral from letting algae grow over them. I have lost corals from having dinos or cyano grow over them, but I've never lost it from blacking out the tank. So in my opinion, it buys you time to try and figure out, okay, uh, I have this is out of whack or I need to do this or something. By the same token, I'm a firm believer in blackouts and water changes. If I do a blackout, I plan on doing as big a water change as I can right afterwards, because typically I'm thinking a lot of whatever's bad in there has settled out, and I can scoop it out as much as I can by doing a water change. I mean, I'm still a big advocate of water changes. Any I have an issue with a tank, it's time to do a water change. And that solves it more often than not, than anything else easily that you can do.
0: Uh, Alyssa M, thank you so much for that super chat. Thank you both very much, so much knowledge. Uh, water changes, how, how uh, often and how much?
1: I do 10% every other week on my 500, and I only do 10% once a month on this tank.
0: Got you. Um,
1: Softball so- tanks are still to me like the dream tank. You don't do all the crazy stuff, they're much simpler. I mean, until the leather corals get to be this big, which they will, you don't have a problem. I mean, as I told you last summer, I had a heating issue. All the big corals and all the small fish died. All the small corals and all the big fish survived, which I do not understand. But uh, for whatever reason, the big corals did not tolerate the heat. And when they get so big, they start producing a lot of compounds and you really have to run an excessive amount of carbon keep from them killing each other with their terpenoids and uh, sarkofitines and everything else they produce.
0: So, Mike, um, you've talked a lot about, um, you know, um, lighting, we've talked about flow, we've talked about uh, trace element additions in terms of having, you know, your, uh, your success and, and what's, what's been some key drivers, but we haven't really talked a lot about pH. How important is pH in, in, in your mind and, and uh, where, do you, where, where are your uh, pH levels at this point?
1: Well, what's interesting is during the early years of the hobby, pH was one of the gold numbers that we looked at. We knew we always tried to keep it up. And it was actually easy because we were all using kalkvosser, so it wasn't a problem. Then as we've gone to using calcium reactors and looking at other things like alkalinity, pH basically fell off the radar. Then a couple, three years ago, uh, Valkyrie Supply did their study where they showed, okay, higher pH, you grow corals at a faster rate. For whatever reason, higher pH is, quote unquote, better for the corals. I didn't disagree with that because I was growing corals like weeds whenever I was doing Kalkwasser and running halides 10 years ago or so, or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So then it wasn't a problem. Since I've gone down from not doing that, I've had more issues. In the past, oh, probably since I saw you last, I have become very aggressive at keeping my pH up by going back to using Kalkwasser. And I have, again, that's another factor that I attribute to why I'm getting faster and better growth and healthier corals. What, uh, As I said, low, low pH tends to favor pathogenic bacteria over higher pH.
0: What's your, uh, what's your low and your high range right now?
1: My low in this time of year, when I close the windows for air conditioning, it'll drop down to 8.0, and my high will be 8.3. In the fall and spring, when I can open the windows and let more CO2 out, and let more fresh air in, I run 8.1 to 8.4.
0: Um, John Wright is asking, Mike, are you still using Miracle Mud?
1: Yes, on all my tanks. Still using it here, still using it down. And, um, oh. Uh, no reason not to. I mean, uh, there's people that are running ICP tests on and everything else. But I think that's just part of it is the the trace elements that leach out of it. I also think it's a, a nice substrate that grow amphipods, copepods, worms, and other things that many of the organisms in our tanks eat. So from my standpoint, it, it's a double benefit. Even if it wasn't releasing trace elements that are beneficial, it's beneficial for my tanks because of the, the fish I keep in the tanks.
0: Um Folks, drop some more questions in the, uh, in the chat. We're, going to, um, we're probably going to wrap it up in about 10 minutes. There was one question that, that I uh, had seen at the beginning of the chat that I wanted to ask Mike, and that's the uh, Plata pink tip. The question from uh, Dusk194 is, uh, do you know what species that is? And that's a picture I'm showing right now of the uh, Pleta pink tip in my peninsula tank.
1: To be honest, I do not, because there's a, a very interesting story behind that call. Uh, it's around 1993, 94, 95, somewhere there. And I wrote an article on propagating corals. And I was at one of the shows, and a gentleman walks up to me and goes, uh, I'm from the Philippines. I want to start propagating corals there for sale to the U.S. Would you write an article for me? Sure. He goes, I'll send you some corals. This is in the early 90s when you could still do stuff. <laughs> I, I sent the article to him via the mail, because there was no internet or anything. Couple weeks later, there's a box sitting on my front porch. Okay, <laughs> styrofoam box, open it up, there's three corals in there, a brown one, a green one, and a semi-blue one. This is okay. great. Put them in the tank, don't think anything of it. The brown one stays brown, doesn't do anything. The blue one dies. The green one starts to encrust like a bowling ball. It doesn't grow at all. It just encrusts and crusts and crusts. I go, this is the weirdest coral I've ever seen. Now, this is all under metal halides. All of a sudden, it's encrusted about the size of a laptop over the live rock. It starts to grow like a weed. Uh, uh, my, my friends, Vic and Lou at Worldwide Corals had a frag I gave them. It grew so big, it tore their entire reef tank down when it <laughs> fell. So, it's a Filipino coral. It's probably the only coral from the Philippines that is widespread throughout the hobby, but I never saw it before. I mean, I see things that look similar now, like the rainbow loom, like the master yes. Yoda, things like yeah. that. But this was, this, as far as I know, is the only coral from the Philippines that got here before everything in the world was banned. And I still don't know how the guy got it here.
0: Yeah. Wow. That is, uh, that is really an interesting, um, story so uh, a couple of um more random questions here john Wright. i'm thinking of dosing calcium hydroxide do i start with small dosing or half the the top up uh, top off needed
1: calcium hydroxide is kalkwasser you it basically dissolves in like a teaspoon per gallon i use it as my top off water i add a tablespoon a day to my kalkwasser reactor and that lasts the whole day and my water i go through eight gallons of water a day so I'm doing basically one eighth of what you potentially could do with it or one sixth or whatever the, the, the number is. So I, it goes in slowly. The way my doser works, it's only on for 15 minute increments. So I only dump wasser in for roughly five minutes of that. So I'm not dumping any more than like a liter, half a liter of Kalkwasser into the 180 gallon sump. So it goes there, it dissipates. So the pH never skyrockets.
0: And you're doing that on the reverse light cycle?
1: I'm doing that 24-7. Ah. It goes, it does this throughout the day. I was doing it only at night, and my pH was still dropping somewhat. Hmm. So now that I keep everything constant throughout the day, the pH is much more stable.
0: Gotcha. Um, Jerry Harkey, should I replace my Radeon if it's 9 years old and still working? Well, I guess the question is, is it really still working to the way it was uh, when you first got it?
1: Yeah, I, or is it working... If you have any idea what the par level is, because, right. I mean, the human eye is horrible looking at par. So, I mean, if, if it's doing like 100 par, obviously it's time to change it for a new Radeon. But if it's still generating 250, 350, 450 par, you're fine. Like, like we discussed, we don't know how long these are going to last. Uh, I've had certain LED com- LEDs from certain companies. The LEDs were doing fine. The fans died it's a 40 dollars part i said i just want to replace the fan oh no you can't you have to get a whole new unit <laughs> oh for 500 dollars for a 40 dollars fan guess what i'm not going to buy your lights anymore <laughs> it's just insane i can replace anything on an electrical thing replacing a fan is not rocket science no. they didn't want to do that they wanted to sell you a whole new light
0: yeah yeah that sucks um yeah so that's, well, we talked about this. That's a good reason to own a PAR meter. You know, if you have LEDs and you want to just uh, kind of track what the, uh, the PAR is over time and, and you got some older fixtures, it's, it's a good reason to, uh, to have a PAR meter. And it's also a good reason to have a PAR meter if you're switching out lights or if you're adding lights.
1: It's also a good reason to have a lot of friends that also do this as a hobby. You can go in as a group and buy it because you're not using your PAR meter every day. So if you have five friends that do it, it's actually reasonable to buy a PAR meter. One person buying an apartment is kind of expensive, but for five or six of you that are, are friends and can share with one another, that's the ticket.
0: Polo Reef by Andrew Sandler. You guys are studs, exclamation point. I, w- I don't know if that's Andrew that's actually commenting there, but uh, <laughs> it's got his <laughs> name attached to it. So thank you, Andrew. That's, that's Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. That's
1: Appreciate your watching tonight, Andrew. <laughs>
0: um, so, Mike, you also mentioned that you're – tank is packed and you can't fit any other corals in there but if you could what would you like to add that you don't have already
1: there really is I, i've never said this before there really is nothing wow uh maybe a a purple millipora that i've been looking for forever that would probably be it uh, i have uh, i finally got some palmer's blue millipora from you thank you i finally got some blue Elbr- uh, that I'm hoping to uh, grow out. Um, I got all the home wreckers and tennis that I want. Uh, you know, to be honest, once you, you get hooked on the tennis, after a while, they're all like, it's just you're rainbowed out. Yeah. So I, I've gotten much more to where I like blues and purples, which, you know, under the hay they're spectacular. Under the LEDs, not so much. But since I run hay for three hours a day, and since I always am, am working on the tank typically in the middle of the day, I get to enjoy those
0: um andrew sandler confirms right of you
1: with a purple millipore out there contact me because i'm looking <laughs> for a nice deep purple millipore. well
0: you know depending on the uh, the spectrum i guess uh blue could look purple
1: no blue is blue under halides purple is purple under leds nothing is anything <laughs> to be anything and, but that, that's an interesting that's an interesting topic that we never discussed is that how much have aquacultured corals been manipulated so that they're totally different colors now than when they originally came in. Like I have a Stuber Acropora that I got from Julian that 30 years ago was chocolate brown. Now it's green and purple and blue because it's under LEDs. The same thing with the Paletta pink tip. The original Paletta pink tip when it was under halides Was pink the tips were vivid pink and when that coral was happy some of those tips were an inch inch and a half long so it was this vivid green coral with these bright pink tips now from leds over the last decade it is now purple tip it's not a pink tip anymore i mean some people may see it as pink i see it as purple i'm I'm
0: showing this picture mike that's um uh, of the colony in my peninsula tank which is under leds it it looks pink to me but you know, I guess again it depends on the spectrum and, and the spectrum that I am running in that tank. I I got called to uh I, I uh Tulio called me on this, but I you know, I said that um the spectrum I'm running mimics the uh spectrum for four hundred watt twenty K uh halides and, and Tulio says you cannot mimic that spectrum in LEDs. I was like, all right, well it's close. I guess as close as it can be.
1: Well, there there will be something coming out on uh, Polar Reef this weekend, where they're going to show the UVA and UVB coming out of halides versus LEDs. That's why Tulio was saying Tulio's Mr. UVA UVB, which is great. Halides do produce UVA and UVB. The problem we have is, is that beneficial or is that negative for the corals? No one has done experiments saying, okay, I'm going to put UVA over this coral and not UVA here see how much they differ, UVB, same thing. Are they beneficial, are they negative? Simply because something is present does not mean that it's beneficial for a coral. So until we can justify that UVA and UVB are beneficial, they may have some bacteriostatic or bactericidal properties that we don't know of. Most people assume that UVC is what kills bacteria, but does UVB have some deleterious effects to it? There's a lot, like we've discussed, there's a zillion questions (laughs) we still don't have the answer for. Uh, That's one of the things I I talked to Andrew and Rashid at the time and give them ideas for experiments, because unlike some of the other entities that are out there, they wanna do experiments that actually aren't gonna try to sell you something, but are gonna show. Like one of the things I suggested, okay, run some corals under blue lights versus white lights, see what the growth rates are. You can grow them under blue lights, you can grow them under white lights, see what the differences are. Uh, By the same token, I actually ran this experiment 20 years ago, and so did Dieter Brockman in in Germany. Take frags of various sizes, quarter-inch, half-inch, three-quarter-inch, one-inch, see what the mortality rates are. Because when these people are selling you a quarter-inch frag, the likelihood (laughs) of it surviving is, from my experience, less than 20%. I don't think that mortality rate has changed in the last 20 years. No one has done an experiment. Andrew has literally 1,000 corals he could frag at those different sizes and say, okay, these are all the same corals. We're just going to see what the mortality rates are in this tank in, in six months. That would be perfect from my point of view to say, okay, guys, no more selling quarter-inch frags for $200. Yeah. You're just ripping people off. <laughs> I, I know some coral fraggers would be mad at me for saying that, but the good of the hobby long term is going to depend on people staying in the hobby. If people go out of the hog because they spent $1,000 on five quarter-inch frags and, they go, and basically people want to kill them, I'm not naming any names like their spouse or anything, you can't continue to, to, to kill the golden goose that way. you got to say, okay, you have to wait another couple months. Do I have half-inch or three-quarter-inch? When I would been in Europe and I've been to frag swaps there, There are no quarter-inch frags. There's not even a half-inch frags. They're all minimum three-quarter, some an inch and a half, some two inches. That's what they consider frags. People now here call those mini colonies. (laughs) Uh, No. I mean, if you break something off your coral while you're pulling in a tank and then sell it, I have a problem with that. I mean, I'd break more stuff off in my tank they go okay. By the time this grows, I, I'm in my sixties. This is not. I'm not going <laughs> to live long enough to see this turn into something. You need a. So. Uh,
0: you need a fighting yeah, chance.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: it's just taking up space and it's not going to do anything.
0: Yeah. No. For sure. Um, Andrew Sandlin wants to know, Mike, uh, what bulbs you use for halides? Are they radiums?
1: I'm using uh, Tulio's bulbs. They're like 14ks.
0: The uh, twin arc bulbs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for our, for our the main reason
1: I'm using it is is, in his fixture, they actually run cool. You can touch the fixture. Obviously, you don't touch the light, but you can touch the fixture, you can touch the ballast. Unlike the old days when I was running the luminarc reflectors, uh, my poor little bald head has been burned more times <laughs> from touching various parts of that while I was working in the tank. I don't have that problem when I touch these. So I'm grateful that Tulio has devised a heat sink that doesn't make the room you know, scalding hot.
0: Yeah, I have um, I have two uh, two of the uh, Reef Bright Halide Hybrid um, pendants that over one frag tank with the uh, you know they have the XHOs uh, supplemental uh, LED uh, lighting, and then I have um, just two and I run four hundred watt twenty k uh, radium bulbs on these uh, frag tanks, and then I have the other frag tank has two uh, big Luminarc reflectors with those, uh, radians in there. And, uh, boy, that is hot to the touch. You cannot. That
1: is hot, hot, hot. Yeah. yeah I have three luminarcs. They're sitting in my garage because so I took them out. I put a bulb in them. I let it run for an hour and I basically heated my whole garage. So I'm saying, nah,
0: <laughs> but the, uh, the par that I'm getting under the, uh, the reef bright fixtures are higher than what I'm getting under the uh, Luminarch. Um, you know, so possibly I guess the, uh, the XHOs are, uh, are, uh, you know, the difference there
1: yeah I, i'm assuming they're probably close I, i'm just running 250 waters i used to run 400 when i had my 1200 gallon tank i ran nine 400 watt under luminarchs that's why it had its own one horsepower chiller <laughs> plus an air conditioning unit for that yeah
0: runner. you don't want to like have to be running chillers and whatnot and ac in a in a uh, in tank room but that electricity bill will get um very expensive no, the
1: electricity bills already are insane i mean they, i'm sure the same for you they Bumped our electricity rate by 30%. And that's just insane. I'm
0: thinking of investing in some solar panels. I need to uh, cut that electricity bill down and make that big investment.
1: It's good the first couple of years when you get the subsidy from the government. But then it basically is, is a, a wash situation. I, I ran the numbers. And they try to sell me on a 30-year program. And basically, I'm taking out a 30-year mortgage to pay them on, on technology that if it doesn't improve in 30 years, I'm in really bad shape
0: interesting interesting plus
1: i would be over 90 by the time it was paid off i don't think that's a really good uh,
0: <laughs> well on, on that note mike i think we're going to uh, we're going to end the live stream any uh, any final thoughts for the viewers out there
1: no i mean one of the things i'm trying to do in these reef builders articles and in the talks and stuff i'm trying to bring the fun back to the hobby uh talking with sanjay and talking with other a lot of other people one of our big concerns is. Oh, too many people are now getting into this hobby thinking they're going to make money at it rather than thinking they're going to have fun at it. I've been doing this for almost 40 years. I try to have fun with it every day. Goofy as I am, I still think this is fun. My wife may disagree on that, that it's not fun whenever alarms are going off or water is (laughs) splashing or I'm almost electrocuted. But I still try to have fun, and I try to make it fun for everybody else that's in the hobby. So that's one thing I suggest. Try to have fun. Try to make as many friends as you can, because with the loss of James and Jake, I've lost two really good friends in the hobby. Fortunately, I have a lot of other friends that I've had for 20 and 30 years. This is a hobby that once you get into with other people, it's a lifetime hobby that you can share with your friends and you can have fun with. And it's like golf or poker. You can always talk about what happened, what could have happened. That's why we like those sports so much. We always talk about the last hole or the last hand. Now we talk about the last tank, the coral I had, or how that fish found a spot. There was a quarter inch and jumped out. There's always something to discuss with that. That's what, to me, makes this hobby fun.
0: Yeah, uh, sharing experiences really, I think, is, uh, is huge, right? Because that's how we learn from one another in, in terms of uh, if, if somebody's having an issue and, and you're just having the conversation, I think that's, um, that's a, such an important thing versus just being kind of connected digitally it's uh it's great to have the um the one-on-one relationships or kind of getting together at these shows like you're going to be at aquashella and and um you know there's nothing like being in person and having these conversations because they're just i think a lot more um beneficial overall
1: yeah i i I think the human factor is something that shouldn't be taken out of this hobby because we're all in this together i mean the one thing we forgot to talk about is what's happening in florida yeah they're potentially trying to shut it down. So any of you that are in Florida or anywhere, talk to your legislatures and sign the petition, not to get them to the blacklist or whitelist the entire hobby. Because the, the hobby may be shut down significantly or completely in Florida if all of this nonsense passes. They have to do something for invasive species because they now have zini in the Caribbean taken over and lionfish. But uh, obviously you can't fix stupidity. And these people were stupid for introducing these kinds of things but you can control things and make things better. And if we all work together, we can do that. So, I mean, I'm not trying to get you all to sit, but we all have to work with this together.
0: Yeah. Um, Mike is talking about that petition out there. And I know that um, some of the um, big, um, I know um, Top Shelf Aquatics on their Facebook page has a link to it. And I, there's, I think there's other links to it on on uh, Facebook. So it's pretty easy to find just... Um, Please read that. And and, uh, if you agree with it, sign that petition. It's um, very, very important. That would be devastating. Mike, it looks like
1: Florida, Florida goes. I expect that California, New York and other places won't be far behind. So it will be devastating to the hobby.
0: Mike, it looks like the uh, the blue spectrum is kicked in on the tank behind you because you're. Pretty much. I know I've
1: gone completely blue. <laughs> you Hold gone on, completely blue. You
0: know. No, that's all right. I was just, uh, I was just joshing at the end of the uh, live stream here. But uh, there you go. <laughs> Greg Carroll's yeah. in the house. Greg, what's up, man? I got a Greg. Now that you're in the uh, the live chat, I'm confirming two weeks or three weeks, whatever it is, we're uh, we're on. Right? I'll uh, I'll DM you. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was better when they could
1: only see me. The- like shadows <laughs> like
0: i was uh, you know a uh, witness when I, when I was talking to you <laughs> i got it i got it yeah awesome well listen mike thank you again so much for uh, for being on the live stream we're going to have both you and sanjay on again at the uh, the end of august and and uh, yeah it's too bad that sanjay couldn't make it but um always a pleasure talking to you uh mike and and i think everybody out there really appreciates your insights
1: Great talking to you as well, Keith. I look forward to sharing the screen with Sanja in August. Yeah. He'll have visited here once and I'll have visited there once. So we'll we'll have lots to talk about.
0: For sure. All right. Well, listen, thanks again, Mike, for being on the live stream. I also, want to thank both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine for sponsoring and supporting the live stream. I also, want to thank all you folks out there for tuning in and um, appreciate that. Also, big thanks to uh to Paul, the moderator, who's also the president of Boston Reefer Society. Please join and support. Your local reefing clubs—they are so so important to this hobby. Also, want to let you know that all episodes of Rapping the Reef Bum are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next wrapping with Reef Bum live stream will be on Thursday, May 25th, taking uh, next week off from my fishing trip. Um, that's going to be with Dr. Eli uh, Meyer from Aquabiomics and Dr. Andy Bauma from—well, um, he's a science educator and hobbyist. So, and he's been doing a lot of work with, uh, with Eli. So that's going to be a very interesting, uh, live stream. Should be another great show. If you want to check out the full upcoming schedule of guests on Rapid of the Reef Bump, just visit reefbump.com under the YouTube section. My next live stream though, is this Saturday. I have a big live choral show on YouTube, May, uh, Saturday, May 13th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So I, uh, I just fragged the hell out of my, uh, my display tank. So there's going to be a lot of, uh, juicy stuff up for grabs on um, some very deep discounted prices. So please uh, check out the uh, the live stream on Saturday at 3 p.m. So until next time, be safe and be well, and uh, we will uh, see you later.